Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website. That's bigamateurism.com, and I've got all my episodes there. I also have a description of each episode and some resources that I link to that relate to each post that you can check out for yourselves. And I also have been writing in a blog for over two years now, about two and a half years, actually. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Okay, so today is Sunday, June 27th, and we're coming off one of the most consequential weeks in the history of modern college sports. We had the U.S. Supreme Court decision on Monday, June 21st. Then we had all kinds of interesting responses to it, including a lot of silence from some of the key stakeholder beneficiaries of the status quo business model. And then on Thursday, a couple of really interesting things happened as we're coming up on this July 1st deadline when six state laws on name, image, and likeness are going to go into effect. And so there's been all this panic. What's the NCAA going to do? And as of today, it's absolutely nothing. (laughs) How does the Power Five fit into all this? That's not clear either. There's obviously a lot going on behind the scenes. But a couple things happened on uh, June 24th, Thursday, that no doubt are influencing the discussions behind the scene. And one was the Kentucky governor's executive order. I talked about that in the last episode. But the other thing that happened on June 24th, and this I really believe is going to keep the NCAA laying awake at night, because this was a much bigger deal than I think it received in the media. In fact, it received virtually no coverage in the media. I saw one article, and it really just scratch the surface of the significance of what's happening in this case out in California. And that case, which is styled House versus NCAA, is another class action antitrust suit by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. And the context for this challenge is name, image, and likeness. And this harkens back Uh, to the O'Bannon case. Remember this O'Bannon case that was filed in 2009 that I've talked so much about and has been so influential in a number of different ways in shaping the law on athletes' rights. But the O'Bannon case was a name, image, and likeness case, and it was litigated for almost a decade through the attorney's fees litigation. And although the ruling was significant because it held that the NCAA was subject to antitrust scrutiny, that its compensation limits were anti-competitive, and that the full rule of reason antitrust analysis applied, the actual remedy in O'Bannon was very, very limited. And just a refresher there, the district court, Judge Wilkin, held that the athletes were entitled to increased value in the athletic scholarship to include the full cost of attendance. So they got this full cost of attendance stipend, which was categorized as name, image, and likeness compensation. Judge Wilkin also allowed payments of up to $5,000 per year as nil compensation to be put into trust for these athletes. On appeal to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit upheld the increase in the value of the athletic scholarship, so they upheld the full cost of attendance stipends. But they struck down these trust funds, and the rationale for that was really amateurism-based. And I've talked uh, about this at length, heading into the Austin oral argument and then after the Austin oral argument on March 31st, because the court used amateurism as a firewall 
on the remedies side of this rule of reason analysis to prevent a full and open market for the value of the athlete's services. And it drew this distinction between benefits that were tethered to education and those that were not. And because the cost of attendance stipend was, quote unquote, related to education because it was folded into the athletic scholarship, which the the NCAA has disingenuously labeled as an educational benefit rather than compensation for athletic uh, skill performance and ability. The court was able to hide behind that false characterization, stick this form of compensation into the athletic scholarship, and then deem it education-related. But anything that was not education-related, the court said would be outright pay-for-play, and that violated principles of amateurism. So the net effect of O'Bannon really wasn't that helpful to athletes. And because of the way the Ninth Circuit and O'Bannon used amateurism on the backside as a firewall to outright pay-for-play... There existed after O'Bannon, in in my view, a limited form of antitrust immunity for any benefits that were unrelated to education, which means that the NCAA had a firewall in the Ninth Circuit against their worst fear, which is the open and free market for the value of the athlete's services. So that limitation, that education versus non-education distinction, that carried into Austin. And so a lot of people, actually, I've had some friends who were following my podcast, reach out and say, what is this education versus non-education issue? Where does it come from? And it comes from O'Bannon and that misuse of amateurism. And it was just folded into Austin without any critical analysis. And when I get into a true breakdown of the Supreme Court's opinion in Austin, I'm going to talk more about the consequence of having that O'Bannon limitation just being brought invisibly into the thinking and the analytical framework in Austin. And it is a substantial limitation on cases going forward, at least in the Ninth Circuit. So let me just give you a little bit of a timetable to just show you where house fits into this whole mosaic of how we define the interests in the market. One of the things that's so important in all these antitrust cases is whose interests are you really looking at? Whose interests are being protected? And there's all kinds of litigation in antitrust suits about how you define the market because that threshold determination dictates the direction of the rest of the antitrust analysis, particularly in a rule of reason analysis that is this full-blown fact-based totality of the circumstances analysis of the market participants and the interests of those people who are in the market. And one of the basic distinctions in how we look at a market and then what interests are being protected is really this distinction between a consumer-facing market versus a labor-facing market. And in a consumer-facing market, the market is defined in a way where you're really looking at the interests of consumers. What is best for consumer welfare, for consumer choice, for consumer demand? It is a consumerism approach. And that's the mentality that courts bring into looking at the justifications for an obviously anti-competitive market behavior. And those justifications come up in this rule of reason analysis at what is called step two. So in step one, after you've defined the market, then you look at whether or not the contested market practices here are anti-competitive, and there's no question. The NCAA has conceded, essentially, 
that its compensation limits are anti-competitive. But then the market actor who is relying on those market restrictions can come in and try to justify it. And those are called pro-competitive justifications. And the NCAA makes that argument. So it's not the burden of proof for the athletes or the plaintiffs to argue what the pro-competitive justifications can't be. All they have to do at step one is establish that the competition limitations or these market restrictions are anti-competitive. And that's clearly the case with the NCAA's compensation limit. So the NCAA then gets to come in and say, okay, these are our pro-competitive justifications. And the NCAA drives the train in defining those pro-competitive justifications and in having to prove them up. And in all of these suits by athletes, The NCAA has characterized its pro-competitive justification of amateurism as one that we have to look at through the lens of consumer demand, because what the NCAA is saying essentially is that consumers have a preference for amateurism. And the way that the NCAA has propagandized amateurism, that has some appeal on its face. But in terms of just framing the interests in this rule of reason analysis, the NCAA is saying that if these athletes get paid and the consumers of college sports view them as professionals and not amateurs, then consumers will flee. And there's virtually no evidence to support that. But that's the way that the pro-competitive justification has been framed. And the interests that are relevant in the way the NCAA has framed its pro-competitive justification of amateurism are consumer interests not the labor interests. So this really goes back to Board of Regents, the seminal Supreme Court decision in 1984. And so, so much of the framing of all these athletes' rights cases is built around Board of Regents because that was really the first time that the U.S. Supreme Court weighed in on the NCAA's business model. But there are some crucial differences between the context of Board of Regents and then these athletes' rights cases where the athletes are challenging NCAA compensation limits. Because in Board of Regents, the dispute was essentially a corporate-to-corporate business dispute. You had this coalition of big-time, powerful football interests operating as the College Football Association suing the NCAA claiming that the NCAA's monopoly over televised football, which it held from 1951 to 1981, and NCAA President Walter Byers ruled that monopoly with an iron fist. But these big-time football interests were saying, wait a minute, that violates antitrust laws because we're frozen out of the market and we can't go and negotiate our own deals without threat of expulsion. And this was an antitrust analysis that focused on what was best for consumers because what the NCAA was arguing is that they really didn't have the market power to have the influence that the CFA thought that they did. And the CFA was saying, yeah, you have the market power. And because of your anti-competitive behavior, there are fewer games, there's less output, and there's less competition. And that's bad for the market. That's bad for the consumers. It's bad for the college sports marketplace. So there was no question that in that business-to-business dispute relating to the number of football games, ultimately, really that's what this was about, how many football games are going to be allowed into the consumer marketplace? And the NCAA was controlling that very carefully. And the schools were saying, no, it's not the way it works. And the U.S. Supreme Court agreed with 
the CFA and these big-time football interests and said, yeah, this exclusive contract right, this monopoly that the NCAA has over televised football is a blatant violation of antitrust laws, and we are striking these contracts down, and we're going to leave to the free market how much football content should be in the marketplace, and that's going to be driven by consumer preference and consumer behavior. And that opened up this whole new world in college sports that has really driven the commercialization and professionalization over the next 40 years. And what we have today is a direct product freeing up that market. But that had nothing to do with labor rights. It had nothing to do with amateurism, quite frankly. And the NCAA really didn't even argue amateurism as a pro-competitive justification. Their primary argument in Board of Regents was that the NCAA lacked sufficient market power to have the kind of control that would allow them to be in violation of antitrust laws. And the Supreme Court said, no, this, you have exclusive control. There is only one market player in college sports, and you are it. So you are a classic cartel, a classic monopolist, and you can't engage in that behavior, that market behavior. You can't freeze out all other market participants. And the NCAA then brought forward this whole Board of Regents thinking. So when we come into this wave of athletes' rights suits starting in 2006 with the White case, then O'Bannon in 2009, and then Austin in 2014, the way that the markets were defined and the way that the NCAA articulated their pro-competitive justification of amateurism were built around this Board of Regents model, which actually had very little relevance to the true market participants in suits by athletes challenging amateurism-based compensation limits. So this whole emphasis on what's best for consumers, what's best for consumer demand, what's best for com consumer choice, what's best for consumer uh, well-being, just got brought into these cases as if that was an appropriate way to look at the market and look at the interests of the market participants. And the O'Bannon decision used that analysis. And throughout those discussions, there really wasn't a lot of debate over what the market was and what the interests of the market participants were and what, what interests we were looking at. It went all uh, flowed through this consumerism model. And that was true with Austin. So in Austin, we had that same dynamic, just pulling forward from Board of Regents. And there wasn't really any discussion about what the market should be. In fact, early in the case on motions for summary judgment at the pre-trial phase, Judge Wilkin basically said the parties agree to the definition of the market. And it was, again, run through this lens of consumerism. So the case uh, goes through trial, and Judge Wilkin issues her injunction, and she says that these limited education benefits can be provided by the conferences, not the NCAA. So she benched the NCAA on these compensation limits that prohibited these modest education-related benefits defined in this narrowly, carefully tailored order. And she turned those over to the conferences and said, well, you can provide all, some, or none of these benefits at your discretion. And... On the back side of that, the NCAA appealed to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit looked at the district court's ruling and said, yeah, the district court did this the right way, and we are affirming in every respect the district court's injunction. And in an appeal from a federal district court case, 
you go to the circuit in which that federal court sits. In this case, it was the Ninth Circuit, and California is part of the Ninth Circuit. So these circuits are constructed by a group of states coming together. There are 11 federal circuits, and the law in each of those circuits kind of runs from the district court up through the circuit court, and then you can appeal from that to the U.S. Supreme Court. So in the federal system, you have those three tiers, the district court, the circuit court, and then the U.S. Supreme Court. So in this appeal to the Ninth Circuit, the uh, NCAA was complaining about all kinds of things. Their primary argument was that all of the athletes' claims in Austin were were barred by the ruling in O'Bannon, basically saying that you can't raise these issues again. They were addressed in O'Bannon and through principles of what are called preclusion with fancy names like res judicata, collateral estoppel, and under the broader umbrella of stare decisis. All those are fancy words for saying, we've been there, done that, and you can't relitigate this. That was their primary argument going into the Ninth Circuit. Interestingly, they abandoned that argument uh, in their appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and I'm going to talk about that in more detail when we talk about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision. But in that appeal... A panel of three judges hears the case in circuit courts across the 11 circuits in the U.S. federal system. Three judge panels hear the case on appeal in the first instance. And this was a unanimous decision in in Austin. So the three judge panel in Austin unanimously agreed that the district court did it the right way, just as the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately wound up finding. But one of the three judges, a guy named Mylon Smith, who was very active at the oral argument in the O'Bannon appeal, he issued a concurring opinion that didn't challenge the the majority opinion. He joined in that opinion. This is very similar to the Kavanaugh concurring opinion. And the purpose of Mylon Smith's concurring opinion was that, wait a minute, we've got this market thing all wrong. And what the courts have been doing in these athlete rights suits is something called a cross-market analysis, where you are substituting the interests of people or things or institutions that are completely outside of the market as it should be defined. So what he was saying is that in a uh, true market definition in an athlete's rights suit, there are only two interests that should be considered, the interest of the employer and the employee, because he was viewing it as a labor dispute. And that gets obscured in all the student-athlete stuff. But what he was saying, what the Supreme Court said implicitly in their decision in Austin, is that this is essentially a labor market. And what Smith was saying, in essence, is that when we go into these athlete challenges to NCAA compensation limits, this really isn't about consumers. This is about the laborers. And when we substitute the interests of consumers for the interests of the laborers, we have essentially nullified the antitrust rights of the true market participants. And those are the laborers, the athletes. And he said that makes a mockery of antitrust law. And there's all kinds of literature. I'm not going to pretend to understand the nuances of this level of antitrust law or cross-market analyses. We'll leave that to the experts. But what Smith was saying here, in its essence, is that 
These antitrust laws are designed to protect American freedoms in the labor market. And so you have these different types of contexts in which antitrust laws are applied. But remember, these are pro-competition laws, and they are anti-market restriction laws at the most basic level. And when you're talking about products, you're talking about widgets, or you're talking about coffee beans, or you're talking about crude oil, and you're looking at the anti-competitive behavior within those markets, you are looking at consumer well-being and what's best for the free markets and what's best for consumer choice and welfare. But when you're talking about wage fixing, so in all these cases, we talk about price fixing, and price fixing really connotes an attachment to a product, a thing, a widget. But wage fixing applies to people. <laughs> and in this the way that we've conflated the interests of consumers and then the, cons- the interests of laborers, we have basically obscured the essential issues in these athletes' rights lawsuits. And we have to look at this as outright wage fixing, not just price fixing. And that uh, consumer-based, price-fixing, product-oriented, consumer-facing analysis has dominated these athletes' rights suits. And Smith was saying, we got it all wrong. And there's a fundamentally different way to look at this. And if you look only at the interests of the actual market participants, then consumer welfare, consumer well-being, consumer choice, consumer preference is completely irrelevant. Because those interests, consumers are entirely outside of the relevant market. And these two actors, the universities who are putting together these packages of goods and services for the athletes and the athletes who are choosing among all these market participants from these various benefits packages, those are the two market actors. And those are the only two market actors who matter. And so Judge Smith's concurring opinion didn't get a whole lot of attention at least not for its legal analysis. He made a a lot of other kind of equity, liberty, justice-based arguments, very similar to what Justice Kavanaugh made in his concurring opinion in the Supreme Court Austin decision. But that's how the press interpreted Smith's concurring opinion. But he was making a very important, independent, substantive legal argument, but it just faded into obscurity as the case then moved into the Supreme Court. So we have the Ninth Circuit opinion, and that came out on May 18th of 2020. Then on June 15th of 2020, a group of athletes file this house lawsuit in California in the Northern District in Judge Wilkins' court, and we're back to square one in another athlete's rights challenge to NCAA compensation limits. The attorneys who are representing the athletes in-house are the same attorneys who represented athletes in O'Bannon and in Austin. And so they are very familiar with this whole song and dance, and they've been part of the evolution of these athletes' rights cases in the Ninth Circuit. And as these cases have evolved, and this is another interesting dynamic and feature of this house case, you see the antitrust lawyers really starting to narrow into what's really important here. 
And we started back in 2006 with White, which settled, then O'Bannon, which didn't leave the athletes much better off and had some features that really weren't that helpful from a legal standpoint for the athletes. Then Austin, which was going to completely upend all amateurism-based compensation limits, but couldn't because of the O'Bannon limitations. But coming into this house case, you see some interesting features that were not in White, O'Bannon, or Austin. And ones that in house that I think are really important are, are first, the defendants that the plaintiffs sued. So in these earlier cases, the plaintiffs, the athletes, were suing all of the FBS conferences, including this group of five conferences, which, which really aren't that relevant in the uh, big-time college sports marketplace. The Power Five conferences, ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, SEC, those are the business of big-time college sports. So in this house case, the defendants are the NCAA and the Power Five conferences, no other conferences. So there's a much more streamlined and I would say much more honest approach to that. The other thing is that for the first time, the plaintiffs in-house, the athletes in-house, are looking at defining the market in a different way. And they are mindful of Judge Smith's concurrence. And so they define them a market in the way that emphasizes the labor-facing market, not the consumer-facing argument. It's not a huge part of their claims, but it's an important one. And through that new market prism, that market definition that's more oriented towards the laborers, not towards what's best for consumers, the athletes are making a number of claims in the name, image, and likeness context. This lawsuit challenges the NCAA's compensation on name, image, and likeness. And in that sense, it seems similar to O'Bannon, but it really is a different case. So they're claiming that all of these opportunities that the athletes have been frozen out of at the individual level, in terms of individual nil rights and the social media stuff or doing a deal with the local car dealership, the athletes are saying that all of these restrictions have frozen them out of opportunities that would exist but for the NCAA's compensation limits on name, image, and likeness. And remember, to this date, the NCAA hasn't changed a single word of a single rule. But the athletes are saying, okay, so we have all these opportunities that we should be having, that we will be having if uh, we listen to what the NCAA is saying to Congress and to the public. And that the denial of those opportunities has harmed these athletes, and they are seeking damages for the, the loss of those opportunities. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second, but that's really important. Then the other thing that the athletes are saying is that, that they have group licensing rights. So this whole nil debate right now is focused on the individual rights. But the uh, NCAA and the Power Five conferences and these Power Five schools, they sell group licensing, name, image, and likeness, intellectual property to third parties like ESPN, like CBS Turner, like Nike and Adidas and Reebok, like all these massive corporate partners. They sell these group licensing rights that give these third parties the right to use the name, image, and likeness of athletes. And it's a complicated area of the law. And what the athletes are saying is that they should get a piece of that action. And the NCAA saying, no, we addressed that in O'Bannon. And then they're also saying that the individual athletes have absolutely no cognizable legal right to protect in that context of group licensing because the, the, the true owner of those intellectual property rights are the producers. 
In this case, the producers would be the universities and the conferences who put on the production of big-time college sports or make it possible in conjunction with these big media companies. And that no individual athlete has an individualized, separate legal right in those intellectual property rights. So one athlete couldn't come in and say, I refuse to participate, and therefore you can't sell these group licensing rights, and you're going to have to carve me out of it. So that's a complicated area. And in response to those claims, the NCAA filed a motion to dismiss that was based primarily on these preclusion principles, race judicata, collateral estoppel, stare decisis, saying we've already litigated these issues, and we did it in O'Bannon because O'Bannon was a name, image, and likeness lawsuit. We talked about the uh, group licensing rights, and we talked about some of these individual rights. All this has been decided in O'Bannon. And they made the same argument in Austin when the Austin suit was filed in 2014. One of their primary arguments, and they filed a motion to dismiss in that case as well, saying, look, all these issues were decided in O'Bannon. So the NCAA keeps pointing back to O'Bannon as having determined these issues, and that was the final word on all this stuff. And you can't bring it up again. And so there's been this dance both in Austin now and House as to what is new and what is not. And Judge Wilkin has been pretty progressive in saying, look, this is new stuff. First of all, the rule of reason analysis is a fact-intensive analysis, and no two cases are alike. So you can't just say as a threshold matter that because House relates to nil that and O'Bannon related to nil, that O'Bannon trumps here. We have to look at the facts. We have to look at the context. We have to look at each claim in a, a very specific, fact-intensive way. So this whole principle of preclusion is less viable in the rule of reason analysis because of its very nature. Then she also said, look, there are new facts here. There are new nil issues that have come up, and we are going to take a look at those. And then she also said, and this really gets to the core of the importance of focusing on the athlete's rights rather than the rights of consumers in defining the market in the rule of reason analysis, she said, look, we may have gotten the test wrong. So in O'Bannon and Austin, we looked at this through the lens of what's best for consumers in this consumer-facing analysis, but we need to look at it through a labor-facing analysis. And she explicitly adopted Judge Smith's concurring opinion analysis and said, in part to make the argument that this is a different case, but beyond that, If you look at it just through the eyes of the athletes and take consumers completely out of the picture because they're irrelevant, they're collateral to the market, the NCAA has zero defense to raise in terms of its compensation limits because this is nothing more than coordinated conspiratorial wage fixing in a market where the NCAA has absolute market power and market control. And so that just completely changes the nature of the analysis and how we frame it. And I just want to say that when you are looking at these cases, these athletes' rights cases, through the lens of consumerism, you're talking about interests that are far removed from some of the central purposes of antitrust law and the protection of human capital 
and human potential. And this ties into the basic freedoms that our country provides in economic liberty and self-determination and egalitarianism and all of the things that make this country great. And when you are focusing just on what's best for consumers and widgets and coffee beans and crude oil, you lose sight of those important principles. But when you focus on this as a labor market and wage fixing and suppressing the talent and the human capital potential of American citizens and American laborers, you're getting a lot closer to issues that are really civil rights issues as much as they are market principles. And that's really important here because that has gotten lost. And I think what you heard in the Supreme Court's decision, both through Gorsuch's primary main opinion and then through Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, is that we've been looking at this the wrong way. And these athletes are Americans on the same terms as any other Americans or any other laborers. And in that regard, another interesting thing has happened really just in the last year, and how the federal government and the Justice Department view antitrust violations that relate to laborers in wage fixing. And there are two contexts that they're really focusing on right now. One is just outright wage fixing, which is perhaps more offensive than any other practice to antitrust laws and free competition because you're restraining human capital. Again, we're not talking about widgets. We're talking about human beings. And then the other thing they're focusing on are what are called non-poaching agreements. And so in uh, a lot of industries, particularly those that have highly specialized labor forces like medicine or big tech, Silicon Valley, I think there's an issue there, where competitors or people who or institutions that should be competitors agree not to hire each other's employees. And those are called non-poaching agreements. And they are direct affronts to the maximization of the human capital potential and prevent people from moving freely from one highly specialized industry employer to another. And the uh, Justice Department has come down hard on that. And they are now, for the first time ever, looking at those wage-fixing cases and those non-poaching cases as criminal cases. They're not just satisfied to intervene in a uh, civil lawsuit between private parties and try to assert the interests of the United States. They're coming in and they are initiating criminal investigations against market participants who fix wages or to agree not to hire employees of competitors. That's a big no-no. And in this broad spectrum of anti-competitive behavior out there in the market, What's happening to these athletes through the NCAA's monopolistic, arrogant compensation limits is far more like what's happening in these wage-fixing cases and these non-poaching cases than in the other end about an argument over the price of widgets or coffee beans or crude oil. And Judge Smith's, Milan Smith's concurring opinion was the pathway for that readjustment. And you have to ask yourself, how is it that this didn't come up before? And I have to go back to O'Bannon and and really get back in the weeds there to see if there was any discussion about the definition of the market and whether it should be consumer-facing or labor-facing and all that. But there's been very little pushback to that. And the Supreme Court noted in their opinion in Austin, they addressed this dynamic. 
And they said there was agreement on this. So one of the key components of the Supreme Court's decision on June 21st was that they really went through and said, look, there's a lot that isn't contested here. And they looked at the rule of reason analysis, all the things that the NCAA really didn't contest, which really brought the athletes very close to a victory. Once all those things, you went down the list of all those things. But some other things that they talked about that weren't contested related to how the parties framed the case. And one of them was how they defined the market. So what I want to do right now is talk about what the Supreme Court did in that case. Because in this timeline, you have the Ninth Circuit opinion in Austin and Judge Smith's concurring opinion on May 18th. Then you have this House complaint that is filed just less than a month later. Okay, And House is one of these cases that the NCAA points to and says, this is frivolous, besieging litigation. And there is a threat here because, as I mentioned earlier, the athletes in this case, and this is an important uh, distinction as well, the athletes in this case are not just asking for injunctive relief. They're not just asking the court to say to the NCAA, you can't enforce these name, image, and likeness compensation limits anymore. They're saying we have incurred actual damages because without the restrictions, without these nil restrictions, we'd be out in the market making a bunch of money. And if they can provide credible evidence that's not speculative of what those damages are, and there is an award of damages under federal antitrust laws, the, that damage award gets tripled. So there is huge potential liability here. And I talked about that back when I was bringing us into the Austin oral argument and some of the broad contours of antitrust law and the difference between injunctive relief and damages. And the damages in an antitrust suit are really a big potential hammer that the defendants have to worry about. And the NCAA has been pretty savvy about settling out damages claims and then just arguing on the injunctive relief. But in this case, particularly with this new market analysis, if this survives scrutiny, going up the, the chain of command through the Ninth Circuit and perhaps ultimately to the U.S. Supreme Court, the NCAA could be put out of business in a big damages suit. And maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Just end the bleeding a different way to get this corrupt market actor out of the way. And then we can start talking intelligently about how the market ought to operate. But when you look at this House case now, you look at how the Supreme Court addressed this cross-market problem of substituting the interests of consumers for the rights of athletes, and then how Judge Wilkin, just three days after this Austin opinion, issues her ruling denying the NCAA's motion to dismiss and incorporating Judge Smith's labor-facing market analysis and the rejection of this cross-market consumer-facing analysis, you really start to see that the NCAA has some real problems here. And again, as I said uh, earlier, I think it's very likely in light of Judge Wilkins' ruling on June 24th, the NCAA is having to think about this in a different way. So you had Judge Smith's concurring opinion on May 18th of 2020. Then you had this House lawsuit filed less than a month later. Then you had the NCAA filing a motion to dismiss. And then in November of 2020, Judge Wilkin hears oral argument on the NCAA's motion to dismiss. 
So they roll through that, and Judge Wilkin, I think, decides she's going to keep her powder dry on the motion to dismiss until she sees what happens with this Austin case. Because in this interim period, the NCAA, not the athletes, the NCAA has appealed to the United States Supreme Court, and they're asking them to review the case. On December 16th, the United States Supreme Court decides that it is going to hear the Austin appeal. And part of that appeal is Judge Smith's concurring opinion. Even though that whole cross-market analysis wasn't litigated in Austin, it wasn't litigated in O'Bannon, the first time it pops up is in this concurring opinion, and it's been pulled through subtly into this house suit, but it's not a centerpiece of the house suit. So then the U.S. Supreme Court takes the Austin case in December, there's full briefing, and there's virtually zero discussion in all the briefing in the Supreme Court leading up to oral argument on this cross-market analysis and substituting the interests of consumers for the interests of laborers, in this case, the athletes. So it's really not even on the table. And then at oral argument in Austin in the U.S. Supreme Court on March 31st, 2021, in the very last question of the entire oral argument, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, asks the United States Acting Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, this question. Justice Barrett. Good morning, Ms. Prelogger. I have a question about the cross-market analysis that the court performed at step two. So it balanced the competition in the labor market against the market for college sports. So what she's talking about there, step two is this pro-competitive justification step that the NCAA kind of defines. They drive the train on that because they bear the burden on that. And they said amateurism and amateurism was tied to consumer demand. And so what she's saying here is so at step two, the court balanced the interests of the athletes against the interests of consumers. And she's getting at exactly what Judge Smith was talking about in the concurring opinion and that you can't cross-pollinate like that. And then uh, Justice Barrett says, and I understand that's the way the case came to us because that's the framework the lower courts used and the one on which the parties agreed. But some of the friends of the court have criticized it. So I'm wondering if you think it is performing any kind of distorting effect that would influence the way we think about this case in a bad way. So what Justice Barrett was asking there is that, is Judge Smith right? Do we have this all wrong? And are we looking at this in a way that undermines the athlete's interests and the athlete's rights? Because we're looking at what's best for consumers, not what's best for the laborers in the market. And General Prelogger says in response, so this issue of cross-market balancing raises complex questions under the antitrust laws. And ultimately, as you've identified, Justice Barrett, the parties haven't briefed it. The lower courts didn't consider it. And we think that the courts should take the market definitions as a given here and not try to more broadly consider when and under what circumstances cross-market balancing can be considered. So for that reason, I'd urge the court to leave for another day any broader questions about how cross-market balancing could be concluded. So I think what Prelogger was saying there is that Look, this has just been pulled forward from Board of Regents. It got no attention. Everybody just agreed to it. It wasn't litigated. So it's a legitimate issue. She's not saying that issue is irrelevant or that the court got it right, the lower court got it right. She's saying this is the test they adopted, this consumer-facing, consumer interest, consumer well-being test, not the emphasis on the laborers. And that's what we're stuck with. But that was a very important exchange because— 
that gave life in the United States Supreme Court to the possibility that this analysis could be done in a fundamentally different way that could result in a completely different outcome. And so we have that sitting in the transcript of the oral argument, and it's part of the thinking, and the cross-market analysis was on the table. And that is so, so important because it, it was initially presented as this kind of offshoot, this little offhand comment by Smith in this concurring opinion, and then it slowly is gaining momentum, and then it is legitimized in Justice Barrett's question to General Prelogger. And Prelogger just nailed it, and and that's how she viewed that uh, potential problem is really how the Supreme Court viewed it. So now I want to go to the Supreme Court's opinion, and I'm only going to talk about it in the context of this cross-market, this cross-pollination of consumer interests versus athlete interests. And so the Supreme Court addresses this, I think, in four separate instances, all brief. And I'm just going to go through and and, uh, talk about each one quickly and the context in which it came up. So in the way it framed its analysis to begin with, this is on page nine of the opinion, so fairly early in the opinion where they're kind of framing the issues, they use this consumer-facing model because it's what was litigated. And it said, the goal is to distinguish between restraints with anti-competitive effect that are harmful to the consumer and restraints stimulating competition that are in the consumer's best interest. So that's how they're looking at the market, all right, and how they're defining the market, because that is how the parties litigated it. And it is based exclusively on consumer well-being. And then they tie that to the complete market domination. So that's how they frame the case for their analysis. And then on page 10, they say, and they're talking here about the NCAA's pro-competitive justification. So the NCAA comes in and says amateurism. And the court addresses what interests are being taken into consideration and how that pro-competitive justification plays into the market conditions and market outcomes. And the court says the NCAA's only remaining defense was that its rules preserve amateurism, which in turn widens consumer choice by providing a unique product, amateur college sports, as distinguished from professional sports. That's how that interest is defined. Then the court says, admittedly, this asserted benefit accrues to consumers in the NCAA's seller-side consumer market rather than to student-athletes whose compensation the NCAA fixes in its buyer-side labor market. But the NCAA argued the district court needed to assess its restraints in the labor market in light of their pro-competitive benefits in the consumer market, and the district court agreed to do so. So here, the court isn't saying that the uh, lower court got it right in framing the issues this way. It's saying this is how the issue came to us, and this is the way that we have to look at it. And so then as the court kind of is rolling into its actual analysis, it talks about all of the things that are uncontested. And the court says before us, as through much of the litigation below, some of the issues most frequently debated in antitrust litigation are uncontested. The parties do not challenge the district court's definition of the relevant market. 
They do not contest that the NCAA enjoys monopoly control and that they fix prices. They go on about all the things that are undisputed in ways that are typically the subject of substantial litigation in antitrust suits, including how the market is defined. And on that, uh, the court then goes on to say, and this is really important, meanwhile, the athletes do not question that the NCAA may permissibly seek to justify its restraints in the labor market by pointing to pro-competitive effects they produce in the consumer market. So what they're saying is that this whole cross-market analysis and this cross-pollinization wasn't challenged by the athletes. They agreed that this could be viewed through the interests of what's best for consumers, not what's best for the student-athletes as laborers. And so in this kind of trade-off between the interests of the market participants, the athletes here, and then what's best for consumers, the athletes didn't contest the use of this consumer-based uh, and oriented analysis. And then the court says, after going through this, this whole list of all the things that weren't contested or weren't litigated or weren't raised below, the Supreme Court says in this simple sentence, with all these matters taken as given, we express no views on them. Okay? They aren't saying that the courts below applied the right test. They weren't saying that Judge Smith's concerns, that Justice Barrett's concerns, that we are subordinating the interest of the athletes to the interest of consumers are wrong. They're simply saying we express no opinion on those determinations, and we express no views on that, which I believe opens the door to a completely different way of framing the market. So remember, this opinion was issued on June 21st. Three days later, on June 24th, we have Judge Wilkins' ruling on the NCAA's motion to dismiss, and Judge Wilkin denies that motion to dismiss in part, I would say in substantial part, because for the first time she brings in a meaningful way this entire cross-market concern and the fact that we should be focusing on the laborers, not on the consumers. So let me just go through her opinion and uh, tell you how she frames it. Because interestingly, she doesn't talk about the U.S. Supreme Court opinion. But there is no question in my mind, looking at the analysis in her order denying the NCAA's motion to dismiss, that she was very mindful of the discussion the Supreme Court had relating to this cross-market analysis. And so I'm going to talk about Judge Wilkins' opinion, really try to limit it to the market analysis. And as she's framing the broad issues before she gets into the legal discussion, she says, according to plaintiffs, the athletes, the rules they challenge cannot be justified on the basis that they are necessary to preserve consumer demand for college sports as a distinct product because any such pro-competitive effect, to the extent that it exists, would fall outside the scope of the relevant market and is therefore irrelevant to the rule of reason analysis. And then in her legal analysis, uh, Judge Wilkin just gets right into it. So she says, a second, the claims in this case are predicated on a different legal theory than the claims in O'Bannon and Austin and will therefore involve different facts. Defendants justify the challenge rules in O'Bannon and Austin on the basis that the rules were necessary to preserve consumer demand for college sports as a distinct product and were thus pro-competitive. 
Then Judge Wilkins says, by contrast, in this case, the athletes allege that this pro-competitive justification cannot save the rules challenged here from being invalidated because any pro-competitive effect that the rules may have on consumer demand for college sports falls outside the relevant market, and any such effect is therefore irrelevant to the rule of reason analysis. And then Judge Wilkins says this legal theory is based on Judge Mylon Smith's concurrence in Austin. So finally, we have this being brought full circle back to where it started in this offhand analysis by Judge Smith that got very little credence when it first came out. So Judge Wilkins says there, Judge Smith stated that the scope of the inquiry at step two of the rule of reason analysis ought to exclude the consideration of any pro-competitive effects in collateral markets. Judge Smith explained that because consumer demand for college sports is collateral to the market for student-athletes' labor, the Ninth Circuit had erred in O'Bannon and in Austin in crediting in step two any pro-competitive effect the challenge rules in those cases on the preservation of demand for college sports. That's a lot of fancy mumbo-jumbo to mean that the courts in O'Bannon and Austin improperly looked at the interests of consumers and elevated those interests over the interests of the actual athletes who were true participants in the market and that the market was defined improperly. And she goes on through a long quote from the concurring opinion, Judge Smith's concurring opinion. And he ties that really into some issues of justice. So he makes the same arguments that we've just talked about. And He says, our rule of reason analysis has shifted toward this cross-market analysis. I fear that our cross-market rule of reason analysis frustrates the very purpose of the antitrust laws, in this case, to the great detriment of student-athletes. And what's great about that, and this ties into the rest of Judge Smith's concurring opinion, which really was an equity-based, a justice-based, a freedom-based argument. Again, much like what Justice Kavanaugh wrote about in his concurring opinion. But Smith was saying this is a question of freedom. The the way that we have conflated the interests of consumers and the interests of these athletes in this wage-fixing conspiracy really takes these athletes out of the protection of American freedoms and, more importantly, out of the protection of antitrust laws. And we can't do it. So this could be a, a very powerful shift in the legal analysis. And again, it remains to be seen how it all plays out. And there's going to be a lot of discussion, I think, in this House case going forward. Because remember, at the motion to dismiss phase, all the court is saying is that there's a plausible basis to go forward. Judge Wilkin isn't necessarily ruling that the plaintiffs are right. So these are going to be fleshed out in litigation. They're going to be briefed. And if the NCAA doesn't settle this case, and there's going to be enormous pressure for them to settle it because of the fear of these treble damages, or at least get the damages off the table. But if this case goes forward and this cross-market issue is fully briefed, then we'll really begin to see whether this is a new pathway. And one of the things that Judge Wilkin doesn't address is how this education versus non-education related benefits distinction would fit into this new analysis of the labor market. So that remains to be seen as well. And again, I'm going to leave to the legal scholars how this could all play out because you're getting deep in the weeds here on antitrust theory and antitrust frameworks and and all the things that make antitrust law so complex. But the issue's on the table now. And I think the pivotal moment here was Justice Barrett's question. When she asked that question on March 31st of General Prelogger, that added, I think, an enormous level of credibility and legitimacy to that argument. And then the court addressed it in its opinion. So it's on the table. And that's an issue 
that the NCAA does not want on the table because it is not good for the NCAA if it plays out as Judge Smith suggested. So we'll just have to wait and see how this goes. But this will be a good segue for me into a more thorough analysis of the Supreme Court's opinion and to look at it step by step and block by block. And there's some interesting stuff there. And even though a lot of commentators tried to make Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence seem like it was an outlier to the tone and the import of the main opinion, I think that's wrong. I think when you go through this opinion, there's a lot there that really isn't good for the NCAA. And the more I look at this opinion, the more I I feel that way. So I'm going to go through that. And then, of course, we're always on call for the next crazy story that's coming out of NCAA land and college sports land. And again, never a dull moment. So we're heading up on this July 1st, the deadline. So we'll just take it as it comes. But I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.